everyone, and welcome once again to another episode of Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm joined on the mic, as always, by my co-host and co-producer, Calvin Pollock. How's it going, Calvin? Doing good, Alex. How about you? I'm doing very well, uh, especially excited today because we have not one, but two uh, experts, uh, guests that we have here on the podcast today. The first I am proud to introduce is Aaron Brock Carlson, whose research centers on the relationship between place, technology, and power, focusing on how communities work together to address complex public problems through communication and community organizing. Uh, her current projects include documenting the experiences of West Virginians affected by natural gas pipeline development, advocating for access and distribution of ethically collected and curated public health data, and developing place-based methods for community engagement pedagogy. Erin, thank you so much for being with us here today on Reverb. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. As Alex said, we have a second guest, guest slash old friend here today. This is super exciting. We're joined uh, back on the mic by Sophie Wadzak, a co-producer of Reverb here, and also, crucially, author of a recent New York Times article from February 16th uh, called Federal Officials Send Help After Ohio Derailment, But Resonance Frustrations Persist. Uh, and so we're so excited to talk to both of you about how your work overlaps. Yeah, and just have a really rich conversation about situated knowledge and environmental crisis. I'm excited. I'm happy to be here. It's going to be fun. Absolutely. So as Calvin alluded to, the topical focus of our conversation today is going to be on the Norfolk Southern uh, freight train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, uh, a major freight derailment that occurred releasing a polyvinyl chloride, a toxic chemical. There was a, uh, a fear of an explosion, and so there was a controlled release of those chemicals into the atmosphere, into the ground, and into the water that has raised a lot of controversies uh, on a number of different fronts. But I think before we get into the specifics of that, we wanted to talk to Aaron a little bit. Could you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you come from as a scholar, uh, looking at environmental advocacy movements, environmental crisis communication from a technical communication perspective? And then maybe how did that shape your perceptions of the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment? Absolutely. So, um, before I talk a little bit about that, I just wanted to orient myself in place because part of what I study is place. Um, and so my connection, so I'm, I'm a, a professor at West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. And so I'm deep, you know, I'm in the northern middle part of Appalachia. Um, but my family's from southeastern Kentucky. I grew up in the Cincinnati area. So like just to touch over. Um, and so I've always been really connected to, I grew up in a rural community also north of Cincinnati. Um, it's not rural anymore. It's like a suburban hellscape, but um, you know, it was rural when I, it happened. There. Yeah. Yeah. There's an Ikea now. So it's like, yeah, it's, yeah. That's anyway. usually the bellwether. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but so place is something that has been really important to me throughout my life, but I guess I just didn't realize it. It was that that's what was like drawing me back to projects again and again and again. Um, and so when I was um, living in the Midwest and, and working on my PhD, I was like, I care about rural communities and where is my family from? Like a deeply rural region that is misrepresented and maligned constantly, um, you know, J.D. Vance, which Sophie, I know he's mentioned a few times in your article, um, now Senator of Ohio, um, but you know, yes. yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, Hillbilly Elegy came out and it was just like this, it was almost, I don't wanna say that my scholarly trajectory went off because of that, but it was just very, a timely sort of um, ancillary to what, those narratives were doing. So I'm happy to talk about that more later. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so my specialty is technical communication. I'm really interested in the spaces where technical communication happens that we often don't see as technical communication. So specifically community organizing. So most of my research has to has been participatory or community-based projects with community organizers in Appalachia. Um, so the first big one that I worked on was one about um, economic transition in Appalachia. So this idea that, you know, extractive industries, regardless of the narratives around things like coal, um, they won't, they are no longer dominant. And so what's going to happen, right, with these communities that were previously dependent on one extractive industry. Um, and so from there, 
it's just kind of blossomed into all these other projects. And so um, the pipeline project that I think really transformed the way that I see environmental communication um, came from a collaboration with a, a colleague of mine um, here at WVU, Martina Coretta. Um, she was in geography. Now she's at Lund University in Sweden. So very different context for her now. Um, but a few uh, summer 2020, we went out for the first stage of research and we went out and we interviewed people that live next to pipelines in West Virginia. Um, and we talked to I should have had the numbers, I'm sorry, but I believe it was 37 that first summer, 37 folks who were living next to pipeline build out. And they just had such a range of experiences, um, many of them negative uh, regarding pipeline development. And when we're talking about pipeline, we're talking about like big gas pipelines, like 12 to 18 inch diameter, um, very large infrastructure, um, rendering plants, transmission plants, things like that. Just like you're in this idyllic rural area and then all of a sudden you've got industrial build out, right? Which is something people never anticipated, never expected. They purposely, you know, many of the folks purposely moved out into the middle of nowhere to be in the middle of nowhere, right? And then they had all these concerns um, ranging from things like light or sound pollution to things like explosion or leaks or mudslides from erosion, just all of this different stuff. Um, and so, Thinking in those spaces, like the thing I want to, that, that I think really drives the way that I've thought about the situation in East Palestine is these people have expertise. Like these people are living next to this build out. The people in East Palestine are living next to the, the fallout from this derailment and their experiences are often devalued because they're not technical experts, right? But they're the ones that have witnessed it. They're the ones that are, their water is a brown color, but the tests say it's okay. You know, it's, it's stuff like that where it's, you know, juxtaposing their accounts, I think is like really important. And it's really, unfortunately, political work to do that, um, to amplify these stories when in a space where I don't think it should be, I think it should just be like, yeah, this is the experience. We should honor these people's experiences. Yeah, I wanted to zone in on uh, specifically that article that you touched on uh, with Martina Coretta, the, the concept of situated knowledge. Uh, could you yeah. tell us a little bit more about what that means from your perspective as a researcher, as well as, you know, what that means to these advocacy groups and specifically why it's important to do this work of legitimizing? Like, what is the what is the purpose of legitimizing situated knowledge? What is involved in that process and why is it uh, crucial? Like, why are there forces that are trying to delegitimize that knowledge. Yes, absolutely. So if we think about kind of the dynamic that we saw is there's this like epistemic authority, this, you know, that, you know, Martina and I as researchers, right, we have this PhD, we have this field of experience, we have this body of knowledge, we have this particular authority, knowledge authority, right? But so do um, the surveyors that come and make maps of the land, so do the EPA experts, so do lawyers, right? Because this, um, especially when it comes to, you know, um, gas and oil or any sort of that, min anything that involves minerals or mineral rights or in terms of um, transportation, you know, building a, a railroad, stuff like that. Like the geography of the land is really important. So you have, you know, engineers, you have all, like, like I said, surveyors, you have all these people that have this knowledge because they have a particular degree or background. But there's also what we're advocating for is more authority given to that situated knowledge, that lived knowledge, that experience that, you know, when you're living next to something and you are experiencing it, and it, and it is like, shaping your mental and your physical health every single day, like that's situated. That's not something that an engineer or a doctor can come in and embody, right? That, that's something that you have to live. And so <clears throat> that's what, when we're talking about that situated knowledge, it's that place-based, it's that embodied, that history, like lots of these people had lived on their land for, you know, decades. And so they saw firsthand the way that the land changed too. And that's not something that an engineer can capture in, in a measurement, right? So really thinking about that and then valuing that sort of knowledge, 
as equal or even in some cases greater to like learned knowledge or expertise um, and seeing that knowledge as expertise. Thinking about Sophie, your reporting uh, in this article from February, that's really the contrast that that I saw um, as being so compelling in the article is kind of there's, I mean, so on the one hand, you have the legitimized, like uh, authoritative knowledge of the EPA, the, 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 um, the rail company itself, Norfolk Southern, even a little bit uh, the politicians who are kind of exploiting the situation versus you have these really compelling interviews with local East Palestine citizens talking about their skepticism of official claims and just, I mean, just these like gut-wrenching emotional experiences of what's been going yeah. on. So so I think we wanted to ask you, first of all, just how did what how did you get this story? Because <laughs> I, I haven't talked to you about that yet. And and second of yeah. all, what was what was the process like of, of interviewing uh local residents? Sure. Uh okay, so in terms of getting getting the story, you know, I'm I live in Pittsburgh and I which is not far from East Palestine. It's about um it's like a, an hour and 15 minutes north from Pittsburgh. So it's not very far. And um, and I'm on the New York Times roster of freelancers. They have, you know, people all over the country who can go do local reporting in, in cases like these where there's not, you know, a full-time paid reporter maybe that lives right near these small communities where this kind of thing tends to happen, right? Because um, I think the the dynamics of all this like environmental politics is not really happening necessarily in New York City or in these big places. But uh, um, yeah, so they they called me up and asked if I'd be able to go out there for the day. And I, you know, the stars kind of aligned such that I like was free and I could go. So I was like, yeah, because I kind of felt, um, you know, I don't do a lot of report. I'm not like constantly covering things for the times. But in this case, I felt like yeah, I, I can make time for it. And I feel like I really need to, like, this is an important, you know, like to, to the points you were making, Aaron, like, it's important to go talk to people and go see it for myself. Cause it's, I, you know, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm kind of in a place where like, I can't, it's hard to be sure what's going on anymore. You know what I mean? Like there's been a lot of, there's probably not enough coverage, but there's, there was coverage enough at that point that I knew about it. You know what I mean? Like when they called me, I, I'd already read about it. Um, you know, a little bit, but uh, so yeah, I, I drove up there and the assignment was basically to talk to, well, there was a, you know, JD Vance had a press conference that was happening. So I was trying to catch that. And then the, other than catching that press conference, the the EPA director was also going to be there and speak at a certain time. So that, that kind of book ended when I was trying to be there. And, uh, and in between, I was just supposed to talk to as many people as I could. Um, so yeah, I just went, I just like parked, you know, I kind of navigated to, I, I found the the family dollar in the middle of the town and I just kind of parked near it and walked around a little bit. There were, uh, it seemed like there were a lot of people around. I was kind of surprised because it was like midday on a Thursday and I, you know, it's a small town, you know, I, I grew up in the Midwest as well and I live in Pittsburgh and I'm, you know, um, just a little small town and there were a lot of people, a lot of those people were news people set. There were a lot of people on the scene. So it was kind of a weird dynamic in the town that day. Um, but I just, you know, I, uh, I was kind of hanging around and I, uh, I saw these two old ladies coming out of the family dollar with groceries. It was like a, an 80 year old woman and her 60 something year old daughter together and chatted with them a little bit. And, you know, just kind of like if there were people around, I just kind of, sidled up on him and started talking a little bit what jumped out at you the most from some of the stories you heard from local residents there, there was kind of a weird like um lack of immediate and a few days had passed but like these two first the, the first conversation i had was with these you know older women um and and i asked them you know did they evacuate and they said they they didn't because uh, uh, one of, you know, a family member of theirs is on oxygen and it would have been very difficult. And so they just sheltered in place. Um, but they just weren't, they were kind of like, a, you know, I was like kind of surprised that they weren't more, you know, fired up about it. Um, and I asked a little bit more about how, you know, well, what's going to happen now? And, you know, what, what, what do you want? You know, how do you feel just trying to get an understanding of where they were at with it sort of emotionally, I guess, uh, just to kind of like, 
get uh, get my bearings, I guess, with them. And uh, one of them was like, well, you know, our neighbor's trying to get in on a lawsuit, but it was an accident. So it's like, you know what I mean? They were like, we, we don't need to make a fuss. It was kind of like the, yeah. the main takeaway, which so so I, I did. I thought there was kind of a because I, I spoke to several, you know, middle aged or, or slightly older residents um, and fewer, you know, the younger people, I think maybe were more like at at work and at school because it was the middle of the day. Um, but I did talk to some younger people as well. So the older people seemed like they just weren't very concerned for themselves so much. Like, um, but then if I asked about, you know, their children or their grandchildren, they were like, well, they, you know, they're they're getting out here or they're not here or they're, you know what I mean? Like they're, um, they just, uh, several of the older people I talked to were like, yeah, it's probably not, they, were, they weren't thrilled obviously about it, but they weren't concerned for their own immediate safety. They kind of, a few of them basically said something along the lines of, you know, I'm too old for this to really hurt, you know, hurt me in the long term sort of thing. Like it was, is they all kind of thought this is, is going to have a long term impact. But, you know, um, that so that was the older residents. And then the younger ones didn't really, um, I don't know, I spoke to two young high school girls who worked for their their high school newscast, you know, and they were there trying to talk to J.D. Vance after his press conference. So I talked to them a little bit and they were, um, they were really, their main, their main thing was about how proud they were of their community for like coming together to like arrange the town hall and, and help, you know what I mean? Like, um, that was like really like they were very proud of the mayor. They were they they kept talking like, um, and one of them was saying like now people know now people know our town like East Palestine now people know where that is but now it's not just the town next to that slightly bigger town with the slightly more well known high school you know what I mean like now they know like there was it was sort of like a point of the de the derailment was not a source of pride exactly but they you know they were taking a very optimistic like come together sort of. I don't know like it was momentum mix. right yes yeah it was just kind of a strange um but but then there were a lot of people also too angry a lot about you know this one guy it's like just bought a house and he's like what am I gonna how am I gonna who am I gonna sell this house to now like this is worth nothing like property owners are I think pretty um aggravated about that and then also a lot of concern for the children of the town like I'm going to tell my kids to move away. I'm going to tell my kids not to buy property here. Like that's like, and that's sort of, for me, one of the saddest things is that like, because this happened, like that kind of decides it. Like that's, there's like, is there a future for this town? The consensus seems like no. And like among the older residents, like, well, I'm already, you know, past my prime. I'm already, you know, in my later years. So, you know, whatever, but like, no, young people will not stay here they will go away now mm -hmm. and like and so um i i don't know there's just something very kind of sad about that because it seems so hard to like if there's any merit in like you know having that kind of like multi-generational community there's there's you know it just seems like for now in that town probably not anymore and that just is I, I don't know that that for me was like sort of the saddest like thing a big picture about it when I was talking to everybody because they just they all kind of seemed to like whether they were like upset or more passive they were like they all kind of knew that D does that make sense yeah. yes and I just want to say that even though when I was out in West Virginia talking to people about pipeline stuff very different context in terms of like you know the derailment's a moment of crisis, right? And you're there directly yeah. in the aftermath. Whereas like pipeline development is a process that takes years, months and years, and it's really extended. Mm -hmm. I heard the same, Sophie, I heard the same dynamics. Like somebody in several people we interviewed said this. So these are their words, not mine, but they talked a lot about a sense of fatalism that they see in the region as a whole that comes from the continued presence of industry and the prioritization, prior, sorry, prioritization of industry over community, right? Yes. So like, regardless of what's coming in, if it's Norfolk Southern, if it's, you know, Dominion Energy, if it's, you know, whatever, Antero or Antera, um, <clears throat> whatever it is, it's like, if it's coal, if it's timber, if it's gas, if it's transport, like whatever it is, they're going to come in, they're going to do what That's they want. What 
and they're going to leave and we're just going to still be here. And like, that's the vibe. And that is, I, and so I, it like breaks my heart to hear that that's exactly what you heard there also, because it's like, what do you do with that? And that intergenerational stuff you were talking about, what's so heartbreaking about that is like, you know, when they, when they settled there, if they've been there forever, this was not their original feeling. They wanted their kids to come back. Right. They wanted to exactly. pass down their land, they you know, to be able to right? like, you don't invest generations in property on land in the countryside because you yeah. like, feel like it's probably going to get fucked over and then you're never going <laughs> to like, it's just, it's so, and, and, and the fatalism you were talking about, like, there's just, yeah, kind of this sense that like, that not i i hope not that they don't deserve anything but definitely that they're not going going to get anything like um because right. i asked these two high school girls right like um d- you know if they evacuated because they're supposed to and they said yeah they um you know they were they stayed in a hotel a couple towns over for i don't know four nights or something and i asked who paid for that and and they were like well yeah no my our parents did and I asked if they had any plan. Like, are they going to? Is there any interest in? Do you feel like you're entitled to be reimbursed for that? You know what I mean? Like, is that on you? And they're like, well, we're financially we're fine, so so we don't we're not going to ask for any reimbursement. Like, you shouldn't have to pay for four nights in a hotel Mm-mm. because some company thought that was like it. You know what I mean? Like, and and a part of me wants to be like, no, be mad. Like, you should ask for that. But then part of me knows, like, what are the chances of them? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like you can understand it because, like, in reality, we know what happens in situations like these. So it's like, it, yeah, you, you know, what's the point in getting fired up about this? We're not gonna. And that's, it, it's hard to imagine organizing some sort of collective action mm-hmm. in a setting like that. Yeah, is, uh, is the problem. But that's not that's not the problem. The problem is derailment. But. That's right. an obstacle. It's you know? it is. It is. And at a moment where this could be momentum, right? Um right. it it's like not catching in the way that one would hope or anticipate. And it's because people have been disenfranchised and ignored and exploited for so long. Um yes. That... Well, one interaction that really this is sort of an anecdote that I, you know, didn't um wasn't included in the the reporting because I merely watched it happen but I you know I was getting in my car starting to rain I had to head home I was parked near this little you know creek that just runs past behind the mechanic shop in the middle of the you know just like small whatever this just corner of a little city street um in the town and there was a man from the EPA who was there um I didn't get his name. I didn't speak to him, but he was, you know, in a full like hazmat suit. He had like stuff on overshoes. He was like, had various sensors. He was taking readings of the, of the Creek and, and whatnot. And a woman from the town who I also didn't speak to um, was like shouting at him, following him down the street. She was like, get the fuck out of here. Why are you here scaring these kids? Like you, what, you know, get out of our town, like screaming, screaming at him. And he was just like, ignoring her and walking along but it was like so um it was like the last thing I saw and I had to leave um and it was so stark because it was like you know presumably those two like the same like she wants what does she want the children to be safe and for her that means not feeling scared you know what does this person want what has he been sent on behalf of if not the children and their safety long term to sense the water it's like they both want the same thing but they're like like for all kinds of reasons she sees him as the mm-hmm. enemy he she for him is an obstacle to him getting his work done like even though you know at its heart that's the same concern just like come in in very different ways and like at each other which is like that classic thing of like no it's you do but it's like no it's not it's the train <laughs> it's the train you know what i mean like it's the company but that was just like that was really sad to see too because it again it's this disheartening and I I'm I'm so glad to hear about you know co- community organizing be a place where these like technical communication skills are so needed and so um because like I I feel like that's in that context is where like where I developed a lot of my technical communication skills and it's like there's a lot of really pressing challenges and 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 it's like exactly where that 
where they need to come into play because like it, it's it's just it's such a tricky situation and in any organizing situation I've been in it's the same where there are these like at root similar motivations that are like somehow just like butting heads and it's um it can just feel so impossible to like to parse it out and move constructively forward you know yeah yes that- that was what I was going to ask you kind of to follow up on that, Aaron, is in your own work, I mean, did you did you see people trying to kind of like navigate and negotiate that complacency, like people who were more fired up trying to be like, okay, how do we get people to actually garner some momentum here? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. What did that, if you saw that, what did that look like? Uh, how did they kind of negotiate that really challenging kind of fatalism? Yeah, that is the question. So, um, so over the course of, so I talked about the first summer we went out and then the second summer we had this fabulous, uh, graduate, graduate student, Rachel Hood, um, who did a lot of work actually in Eastern Ohio and Western PA too. Um, but they went out and they were doing the similar research to what we had done the previous summer. And so all in all, we ended up together all talking to like 60 something people. So this uh, across PA, Ohio, and West Virginia. So I think, you know, we can make some claims about this regionally. Um, but yeah, so community organizing. So, so it'd be very similar dynamics. You had, you know, people that were kind of just like, it is what it is. We had a significant number of people and you have to, like we were doing snowball sampling. So it was people would refer us to people. So of course there was probably like a sampling bias in terms, we did talk to a lot of people who were involved in community organizing because those are the people that are like out there ready to talk to you, wanting to talk to you. Um, but in, but in terms of the, like dealing with that sort of complacency or that, and I don't even want to call it complacency because like people are upset, but it's like, they just don't know what to do. Right. Um, and there's a lack of resources out there for like how to actually get together. And there's also, you know, so if you were talking about these different stakeholders that like, You've got the company and you've got like, here's an example. So public meetings, for example, when you have like in terms of, you know, the derailment or if there's development happening or any sort of change, you have public meetings. Not all public meetings are the same. Some are called by the company. Those are very different <laughs> in format and nature than one that's called by a community watchdog, watchdog group or one that's called by a public officials, right? So it's like even spaces like that that are supposed to be like democratic or like spaces for people to connect, they are not necessarily that. And when somebody goes to something that the company is holding and it's like three company representatives who don't allow questions, they feel they're like, what's the purpose of this? And they won't go to another community meeting. So the people, you know, people that were really passionate, that were really fired up, I think one of the big takeaways for them was, thankfully, some people did have hope around that sort of like organizing work. Um, But, and I think, and I don't know, I, I just, I'm afraid I don't have a good answer for your question because one of the stressors for people was this like generational flight. Because there were a lot of people that were older and they were like, I've been fighting this for 10, 20 years. My ki- I don't want my kids to come here. I don't know who's going right. to take this up next. And so it's like, but then you have young people, the young people we talked to, they were very passionate about it, but it's like, there's a disconnect. Like, I don't know. And I don't know exactly how to articulate it. Cause I think it is situational in terms of like different personalities, But there's definitely maybe even just a shift in the way that we see community organizing happening. Um, And so maybe that's something that I'm, I'm still parsing through, but. One concept that I'm, that I'm wondering, and I know that both of you have thought a lot about is neoliberalism, right? Because Mm -hmm. I know that's come up in some of your work, Aaron um, and, and Sophie as a, as an organizer with DSA and 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 other kinds of organizing that you've been involved in, uh, neoliberalism is you know is kind of like the big thing that you're fighting. And I'm wondering how much that is is a factor in this like younger generational uh, disconnect from movements. Um, this and and also, I mean, the the idea basically that a a private rail company can you know all but cause a disaster like this and just wipe out a town. Uh, and that's that's just sort of par for the course. Um, with business, it makes me think about 
neoliberalism as uh, both an economic engine and something that shapes policy and how much that affects um, organizing in these spaces? Well, I think one thing, you know, Calvin, as you were talking, I was thinking a lot about for situations like this, um, you know, environmental crisis, environmental change, people living in the wake of it have very personal and like intimate reactions and connections to that work. And so I think sometimes they like, and this is, this is my interpretation, but it's like, you see it and how it affects you. And it's like, you're the main character and like the land man or the person from the EPA or your neighbor who signed the paperwork to let the pipeline come in or whatever. Like it's a very personal like situation. And so it like, it, I think it can be harder sometimes to see those larger structures at work. Not, and maybe not harder, but it's just like, you're so preoccupied with like what happened to you that it becomes harder to sort of, and then when you're connecting with other people, they want to tell their story of what happened to them. And so sometimes I think it can be very hard to sort of build to that larger, like how do we navigate this like super like entrenched system that we're all subject to where the companies have all this power and they can afford the really fancy lawyers and they can make sure that there's conflicts of interest with every single lawyer in the state. So maybe there's only like one or two lawyers in West Virginia who might take your case, right? Like, I think, I I think again, it comes, it's so personal um, that I think it can be difficult to work to that larger, um, you know, and I will say with younger people, I heard the word neoliberalism a lot, which is like, good, right? But I think it's like, what do we do with that? Because it just seems insurmountable, you know? Yeah, goes back to that sense of, you know, the, uh, what is it, the, the was that a Margaret Thatcherism, uh, there is no alternative, or, yeah. you know, that, yeah, there's, it's, you know, that it's, it's more, uh, I think it was Mark Fisher who said, it's easier to envision the end of the world than the end of capitalism, or the end of these kind of yeah. intractable problems that uh, seem to hamstring movements along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, um, that makes me think about one more thing that when I was talking to these high school girls, I, you know, I was asking them about if, if they worried about the water and stuff. And one of the things they said was that, the, you know, the guy who came to test their water was a the guy they know. Like, I can't remember his name. They're like, oh, mm. we know him. Like, he works here. Like, he wouldn't, his kids go here. Like, he wouldn't tell us the water wasn't okay if it wasn't. Like, why would he lie? And it's like, that's such a, it's so tricky, right? Because it's like, well, what you want is like, no, you shouldn't. Like what a what a nefarious like thing like this like big company like putting on the mask of this like local guy who's just there to, like he and like you don't want to break that trust because it's like it you the you want the community to trust each other so of course like yeah like trust that guy because you have before and he lives there yes and you know him and he's part of the community like yeah you that's you should trust him but like but can you and it's not about that guy it's about like what's going on and so it's such a hard thing to, like navigate that because like how do you get I, I i don't know it's like to to point out that you shouldn't trust that information seems like it would be damaging to the relationship with that man and how mm-hmm. how canny and how clever to make that situation because the people who are responsible fa- their faces don't exist there so it's like they're not real people right but in terms of community organizing in like small towns or rural places that work looks so different from more populated spaces and all of the toolkits and all of the resources are created for more populated spaces. And like, yeah, that makes sense, but rural organizing looks different. Yes, it does. And so to your point, like that personal connection is so important, but it's also difficult. Like you can't, you know, if you think about organizing being recognized. Yeah, exactly. It's like, because everything's so entrenched. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, one thing that I, you know, I hope that we can talk about is like, and something, a question I had for you, Sophie, was like, if people are thinking about like the economic, like implications, because I mean, with pipeline development, it's often framed as like, this is going to be good for the county. And like, uh, we're going to get so many jobs. And like, you know, if you go to these, uh, you know, oil and gas communities in central West Virginia, they all have really, really beautiful football fields for the high school. They all have really, really beautiful libraries. They have really beautiful parks that have a Look little plaque. Here. 
Mm -hmm. that have a little plaque about like who donated it. And it's usually the gas and oil industry in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's also the narrative that is going to bring jobs. And, you know, people we talked to had varying opinions on whether those jobs, you know, were worth Mm -hmm. it or whatever, or what the actual economic impact was. So I was curious if that came up at all in conversations with with folks you talked to. Well, and that's interesting too, because that's the difference between something that, you know, uh, some entity plans and can strategize for with like a gift sure. along the way versus something that like, oh shit, like yeah. it happened, like a train derailment where nobody, you know, they didn't plan for it not to happen, obviously, but certainly wasn't something that they're trying to sell as a, a feature, right? So yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, in that, in the case of a pipeline with the other, you know, package incentives, whether or mm-hmm. not they're good or bad, that wasn't really a conversation. It was more like, the 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 spectrum was how big a deal was it mm, you know what okay. i mean like and and yeah. so whatever whatever invisible forces are at play to, to making that the framing of the conversation i see it, it, it was just like you know was it a big deal eh, yeah kind of yes maybe no maybe yes da, da, da. And, and i think that i mean to speak to that point sophie the the notion of you know what is the gradient upon which we say how big of a deal this is that is also so <laughs> contextually rooted in like right. a history of policy making decisions that again i mean this is why i do feel like you know bringing in technical communication perspectives is so important for this um because that kind of critical context for example a lot of the reporting uh you know the the sort of uh media narratives that have circulated around this focus on the epa standards for you know federal action levels for levels of dioxins in your soil mm-hmm. in your water in your air um yeah. and and right now, just to cite some some statistics, the federal action level that Ohio is also uh, sort of mandated, uh, or the, that's their standard as well, is I think it's 1,000 parts per trillion of dioxins in uh, uh, concentration in uh, a given sample. Um, if you, I mean, but if you do a little bit more digging, you learn that, you know, back in 2010, uh, under the Obama administration, the EPA actually had uh, a regulation that was, you know, on offer to lower that, lower that threshold uh, based on current research and science that had been done on the long-term health risks of dioxins in uh, in these samples that said, you know, actually uh, the federal action level needs to be 72, not 1,000. Like it needs to be a very minor fraction mm. of that. Um, that regulation was, you know, killed off back in 2010 and it has gone, you know, there are states that have lowered their action levels to like, you know, I think, uh, you know, in California, there's this like 50 or something like that. Um, but realizing that, again, this is kind of uh, this is a challenge, I think, for anybody who's doing community organizing uh, and particularly in rural areas to see that this is not just a uh, an issue of your own person, like it is very much an issue of your own personal life and your, you know, your stake in the issue, your family long term. But it's also something that is being experienced by other people, other places, right? Like this yeah. is not the first. Uh, I mean, you know, this the one of the things I thought was uh, more fascinating uh, about the East Palestine derailment was that it called attention to the fact that like, actually there's a lot of these things that happen every year and not just in, I mean, not just in rural Ohio, but like all over the country, there are, uh, you know, even in just the months prior to, or uh, in the month preceding that, there were two other really high profile derailments in I think Washington states and- There've been several. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they just, uh, yeah. But I, but I do wonder the extent to which a news reporting or a technical communication perspective, uh, what the effectiveness might be of connecting these sort of localized issues and the personal experiences of people who are on the ground experiencing that to similar things that are happening elsewhere, sort of helping people understand that this is not just you, your individual lone community experiencing this, but this is a, you know, this is a cascading effect of a larger system where these kinds of local problems are being experienced all over the place. So um, a lot of the organizers, a lot of the folks who identified as community organizers, because that's another thing, people do community organizing work and they don't identify as community organizers. And when you ask them, they're like, no, I'm just like connecting my neighbors, you know? And so that's an interesting thing. But um, 
it seems like a lot of that knowledge, again, and especially for rural spaces, because there aren't a lot of resources out there, it's very much like interconnected in terms of like who you can reach out to. And so, for instance, um, you know, in PA, it's the, the big pipeline is the Mariner um, pipeline. And so a lot of folks up there have talked to people down in Virginia, Southwest Virginia, or sorry, Virginia, I'll just say, um, about the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which also goes through West Virginia. And so Mount, like in Virginia, those, that network has been very successful um, in terms of their environmental activism. And so they, and they folks down there talk to people out in Standing Rock, like there are those connections um, but it's getting people tapped into the network, I think, is is what people struggle with, because it's like if you've never been like environmentally active or environmentally conscious and then all of a sudden you find yourself in this space and you're overwhelmed and you don't know what to do and you're just trying to like make sure your kids are safe and not drinking contaminated water or breathing contaminated air. It's like that next step can be really hard. Um and it's not to say it doesn't happen because there were people we talked to who this is what made them. I mean, there were several people that were now working for nonprofits doing this sort of work because of their own personal experiences. And they had gotten connected and tapped in and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's a lot of value in it. And I saw evidence of it and people and that's, you know, and we we ended up Martina and I ended up talking to people in North Carolina who were interested in the work and that sort of thing um, and a couple other places. But yeah, I think it does happen, but I just think it's slow. I think that's such a problem because I don't know that it's a question necessarily of of collective awareness so much as it is of bandwidth. Like something mm -hmm. happens in your community, you need to work to, you know, there's all of a sudden it's, you know, it takes over your life and there's all this stuff that you've got to do in addition to all the things you're already doing. You know, these are not wealthy communities, like people in these right. communities work and they have a lot of, you know, so it's just like, it's, it's, people people come together when the situation calls for it and that happens in the place you know um but then it's hard to take like you don't necessarily have more to give to other places and you wouldn't necessarily get a community rallied around something that hadn't happened yet it's like you're like constantly like trying to like mend like leaks you know what i mean it's it's like yeah. you're you're always playing catch up because it's like well something terrible happened and now the community's coming together and now over here now something terrible happened but it's like by the time you're like aware enough to be like charged up maybe you don't it's it's just it's hard to to put that all together because mm -hmm. people just don't have you know it's it's just hard like what yeah. what more could you already give than like everything you're already doing for your own actual like family and community it's hard absolutely and there's so much burnout and people you know people we spoke with talked about that it was like mm -hmm. I can't you know I because these movements when they're so localized are personality led right they have to be mm -hmm. there's not a ton of in the, so these people are like going door to door talking to their neighbors having really difficult conversations with one another mm -hmm. um and it's like at a point <laughs> They, they just don't have any more to give. And I, I don't blame them. Like they shouldn't right. have to be, they shouldn't have to be right. in this situation in the first place. The burden shouldn't be on every small community to like right. fight these giant <laughs> corporations. Like it's too much. It's, too, it's, and that's, what's so hard. Like, I think that if people had the like space and time and resources that they needed to like mm -hmm. get the full picture, of course, like, I, I, I think there would be a lot less of a problem, but it's, it's exactly because these are communities that are already, you know, hard pressed in various ways. Like I'm not trying mm -hmm. to be demeaning. I just mean, you know, like small town America is not exactly on the up and up right now. So it's not, it's, it's really hard to, if something as devastating as like, now you can't stay in your home, yeah. or drink the water, like to expand any efforts outward would be yeah. so much to do. Yeah. Well, the economic burden, what you were saying, Sophie, right. about those girls saying like, okay, well, we, you know, our parents paid for a hotel. We all went to a hotel. Buying bottled water, yeah. um, not cooking, with, you know, like buying an air filter, all that stuff is like an undue That's economic real. burden that mm -hmm. people should not. And, and that, in addition to the, um, just the uncertainty, one thing I did want to say was one of the biggest things I think about a lot is just like over half of the people we talked to said that in the event of, of like an explosion, which was their number one 
fear. As rare, they happen, they do happen, but like as rare as pipeline explosions are, that's very scary. So over half of the people we talked to said they didn't have a direct contact. They had a 1-800 number that maybe they could leave a message or they didn't have anything at all or the the landman, so the person that's like come around to, to work with them on their contracts and stuff, that, that person changed and they didn't know the new person. Like the lack of security people feel with like, what do I do if a crisis occurs combined with like the economic burden of, or paying for your own testing? Because a lot of people don't trust the company tests. Um, and so then you have to pay for your own testing. And then what do you do when the test comes back different? So it's like this, like mental, the mental load of this is so incredible that, that just the capacity is not there for folks. And it's totally understandable um, why that is. And it's just like a very harmful dynamic. Yeah. And I just have one one other question related to kind of the broader politics of this when you're facing these challenges like these economic challenges these everyday um informational burdens the uncertainty um in these kinds of situations it makes these situations really ripe for exploitation by uh both political actors and like media actors and so i'm thinking especially about in your story sophie like the politicians who are quoted in this story are not people who I like very much. It's people like J.D. Vance, people like West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Um, and and so so there's that element to it. And the thing that kept striking me when when all, all of this was happening was like, since when is something like this partisan? Like, I know that's a naive question to ask, right. but why is this being framed in a partisan way? by the media yeah. when it's really just a disaster that's affecting you know poor rural people like why should i care about like the party politics of it um and i found that very disturbing that it seemed to be like but so one of the things that i appreciate about your reporting and and what you've been telling us today is just getting this on the ground sense that like they don't really see it as this like charged up like polarized media thing they're just like yeah this kind of sucks i don't know what to yeah. do um i'm just trying to live my life right day by day but like right. why <laughs> so did you get a sense of that polarized reaction at all on the ground or was it just like that's a totally external thing yeah it wasn't really about any nobody nobody mentioned democrats or republicans nobody said yeah. anything about that i think it was yeah it was like how how you know what were they going to do and what did they deserve and it was about them it wasn't there's not a lot of like polarization in the town like people are it's a community and there's people are on kind of a, a wavelength like um not to say there aren't any political disagreements at all but um yeah that wasn't really like part of what people were like charged up about when i was there you know yeah. And I'll say for, for my experiences, it's much more about local politics. Like very rarely did people mm -hmm. talk about national trends. It was much more like, I don't trust the County commission, you know, like, right, right. you know, exactly. stuff like that, where rather than talking about, I mean, you know, and I'm, I was in West Virginia. I don't think mansion came up once. Like, yeah. I, I don't, you know, so I think it, but you know, he so went it was, to East Palestine or, or at least commented on it because right. it was a spectacle to exploit. Mm. Right. Right. Yeah. And so they were talking about them that day, like the, the, the girls I ran into were interested in like seeing these like politicians who they'd heard of, like be there in person. Like, you know, that's a, more of like an event in the town, I guess. But like, I don't know if anybody, like the, the, so many people were trying to get J.D. Vance to say, like, do you think the water is safe to drink? Do you think it's safe to drink? You know what I mean? And he was like, I, you know, if I was being safe, I'd drink bottled water. Yeah. I'd drink bottled water for now just to be extra safe. Like, and it seemed more about, like, scoring that, like, sound bite. Like, did he say it was or was it? Okay. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, but, like, what's that really going to do? Like, whether or not J.D. Vance says he's fine with drinking tap water in East Palestine, like, Speaking of expertise, like what expertise does he have to right, determine right. that? I'm sorry, like you're, like you're he's not a scientist, right? Like why would why would it matter? You know, it just is. Uh, yeah, it's um, 
I really wanted to dunk on JD Vance. So oh, please take, take any opportunity. So that was the moment for me. That was the <laughs> point of this question. I just wanted to give you both the chance to dunk on these politicians. Yeah. Easy, easy yeah. layup. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I think I mean we're we're probably I, I mean you know we're probably not coming to a resolution here about like what is to be done about the we didn't solve uh, the problem we, which is which is I mean I don't think that was our purpose coming in here either but no. I mean what has been revelatory to me throughout this conversation is the way that we can better understand the contours of uh, issues like rural organizing like what are some of the obstacles and impediments particularly when this kind of becomes its own uh, its own kind of of spectacle that gets taken up by national news media to the point where you know the conversation is now becoming more about like uh were there russian bots that were trying to influence like the uh, an anti-american narrative of it's like well, this is so external to the actual lived experiences of the people who have been ground down by you know decades worth of uh the effects of this kind of deregulation and I mean, I still think that it does, you know, even for those of us that don't live in rural areas, uh, you know, and I promise I'm not trying to make this uh, just one big argument that says go out and vote, but it is kind of a, uh, you know, it's something to keep in mind, like hearing these these stories of people who are experiencing this firsthand on the ground, feeling that sense of, again, not complacency, but just like an understandable, resignation. yeah, yeah, an yeah, understandable sense good, yeah. of fatalism or resignation. Um, and and knowing that that's that's the challenge right that, that that the challenge is to be able to you know restore a sense that another world is possible that it doesn't like you know we didn't have to have this federal regulation set at 1000 parts per trillion there was a time there was an opening where it could have been back down to 72 and there could have been like actual really important legal action that took place here whereas now you know Norfolk Southern maybe has more grounds to say well we didn't pass that you know it's only 700 parts per trillion in the soil it's not going to be a problem like we are not legally liable for this so i think by putting our focus back on and you know again borrowing aaron's language of actually legitimizing the stories and the experiences of people who are experiencing this at a local level um mm -hmm. is really critical for you know for all of us who are trying to understand what these policy what what impact federal policies might have on us one day right and the kinds of things that we all maybe need to be prepared for whether or not we live in a rural community or in a more populated area so much like even what i said about like how is jd vance like you know how is he qualified to rule on that like i think that the way that we oftentimes think about expertise is it's like ranked like who is the ultimate expert like whose knowledge is the most valuable whose is the most legitimate right and i don't know that i don't i think coming out of this like that's not a val like that's not a productive lens like multiple knowledge like you can layer them like they can work together like and I, I was thinking you know Alex we were talking about kind of like legal proceedings and like that's something else that you know this stuff is really complicated and you know when we come back to you know different types of expertise or like you know you've got like the environmental measurements and things like what does that mean like that's really confounding when people get their test results back from their well water what do these numbers mean? You know, like that interpretation is so important, but it's also like, if you're going to try and like navigate legal documents and contracts, that's really complicated too. And so it's like, when you think about these people who, you know, we, we talked to folks who literally had and shared pictures with us of brown water and the test came back and said like, it's safe to drink. And it's like, drink this brown water like yeah. I, don't, I know you know it's like I'm yeah. not going to even though it's safe so it's like people are always I think trying to legitimize their experiences and so it's through these formal channels and so I think it's like trying to juxtapose like for me I think a moment of hope is kind of like if you can get people together and if you can, you know, create spaces or create resources or create opportunities for people to try and juxtapose different types of knowledges or different types of expertise or get experts out there that can help people um, interpret things that maybe, you know, 
they, I mean, I certainly, I can't interpret those test results. Like I have to sit down with somebody. Like when people shared them with us, we were like, we don't know what the hell this is. Like, I don't know, like you know, um, but yeah, I, I, I just, I don't want to like end on a, a poor, you know, just kind of, cause it is, it does feel overwhelming and insurmountable, but like, I think there are moments, right. Where people can come together and where people, you know, there are, you know, asking people if they feel hope for the future, there were people that said yes because they had built networks and like, yeah, this is a daunting task trying to keep our community safe. But if we're not fighting it, who's going to, you know, um, I think reporting like Sophie's is, is part of that because it validates these people's experiences. And I think that's key, right? Because more people yes. read your article, Sophie, than anyone will ever read anything I ever wrote. You know what I mean? So like, right. That's important. Is, <laughs> it's a frustrating thing. Yeah. I feel like I, um, that's, so much of my work, because I, I work in research communications, right? And so like, mm -hmm. you know, my colleagues will spend months on something and then I, you know, write something very, very much quicker about it. And that gets way more circulation, but it's all in service of like pointing to like, that's, if you want the answers, like that's, this is where you can go. And I feel like that's why, you know, um, I, I, yeah, that's why it was important for me to go out there. Cause it's like, I want, I want to see it with my own eyes, you know? And I just think that like, I, I think we all are in a situation where we feel like there's not so much we can do to move the needle, but, you know, if exposing stories like that and like amplifying the actual lived experience so that maybe in the next town over like, hey, that's, oh, you know what I mean? Like that's what it takes to get people to connect the dots. Like I think there's, it's very hard to do a mass action that like reaches people, but it's that little like, bit by bit that spread of awareness that like helps to normalize the conversation. So it's not you being like, you know, yeah, yeah, you can talk about that. That this is something that we talk about. Like, is your water safe to drink and what are people doing about it? Like, yeah, you should talk about that. Let's all talk about that. So I feel like yeah. the that's for me, I've just kind of that's if I can help do that in any way, that's something. Sophie, I think that you demonstrated a method that I find really inspiring which is like give people that that uh, microphone to talk about their experiences. And regardless of what it shows, because I found it interesting that the first experiences that you shared with us on this conversation were kind of like, almost like not what you were expecting. Like it was like, yeah. it was like, yeah, I don't know. Shit's fucked up, yeah, <laughs> but, basically, yeah. but we don't know what to do. Um, and but that even that is so revelatory and and so useful um, because it pushes against these broader like polarized media narratives. So yeah. mm -hmm. and ditto and ditto for Aaron your work too. I mean you are incorporating people's situated knowledge and on the ground stories as part of academic research. That's also another one of yes. these spheres where I think Crucial. that that you know recontextualizing and amplifying uh, people's uh, experiences and narratives is. Uh, really important uh, to show that this is a, again, going back to what Sophie said, kind of normalizing that as a practice that we have as researchers and communicators, um, I think is, you know, at least to get a better understanding of the problems and where we stand in relation to them. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's really crucial as well. Yeah. And I think too, in terms of like, when we hear like complex problems like this or environmental change, oftentimes the narratives are very steeped in like measurements in expert opinions. And so anything like people's lived experiences are really important, right? Because I mean, in, you know, East Palestine, it's like, okay, what's the measurements? Are these, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it goes back to that, not like the fear or trauma of yeah. like having this yeah. horrible industrial accident in your home, in your backyard, right? Like right. that's not, and that is something that these people are going to be living with for the rest of their lives you know yeah yeah and you can't put enough i mean how scared are you on a scale of one to ten like it's right like, it's, <laughs> and be because you can't like measure it it's like a, it's not as appeal you know what i mean like people want they want those numbers like that's mm -hmm. what that's what resonates that's what seems official so that's yeah it's a frustrating thing 
Well, uh, I think we we probably should leave it there for today. But at the very least, I think, again, uh, pointing to some really good provocative examples of how we can, you know, tell a different story about these kinds of events from both a research and a uh, reporting uh, perspective. So I want to say thank you once again to our guest, Aaron Brock Carlson uh, from West Virginia University. Thank you so much for being with us. And Sophie uh, Wadzek, thank you very much for sharing a little bit more about your reporting here as well. This was a really valuable conversation conversation, and I'm glad that we get to share it with our listeners. From all of us here at Reverb, thank you for tuning in, and we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock, with editing work by Calvin. Reverb's co-producers at large are Sophie Wadzak and Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.